Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lay not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this uh, this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship, ready to focus on teaching of the Word. I guess there weren't any Christmas parties last night because everybody looks a lot more alert and awake than they did last Sunday morning. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we do thank you that we have this day that we can come before you, that we can learn your word, and that we can be confronted with the reality of your integrity, the reality of your grace, all that you have provided for us, that we may learn how to live on the basis of everything that we have in Jesus Christ, and that we may continue to advance to spiritual adulthood, spiritual maturity, that we may glorify you in our lives. Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation to meet like this, and we continue to pray for our president and his advisors, for our political leaders as well as military leaders, that you would give them wisdom, that you would give them discernment, that you would also uh, give them the information they need through the operation of their various intelligence sources to be able to make clear what the issues are in Iraq and that, that it will be undeniable that there is a necessity if such exists, to go to war. Father, we continue to pray that you would guide and direct them and that you would protect those, especially those who are from this congregation, to watch over them and and, uh, take care of them while they're away. Father, we continue to thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word that is so clear to us. We pray that you would help us to see how these things apply in our own lives and our own thinking and that as it presents a challenge to us in the way we think and the way we evaluate ourselves, that we would have the objectivity, the humility, and the spiritual courage to put into application that which we learn. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and we continue our study here. Next, um, just while you're turning there, one announcement I... I did not mention, next Sunday I will be uh, uh, on vacation and will be 
down in Houston taking care of uh, family responsibilities uh, for both my family and Pam's family. And uh, we're gonna have, you're going to have a great and unusual blessing next Sunday morning because uh, Reverend Curtis Somerville from uh, the Bible Missionary Baptist Church over in Wilmington, Ohio, is going to, going to be here. And Curtis is really great. He's a lot of fun. And you, some of you met him a couple of years ago when he happened to be passing through and, and visited. So he's going to be here. And that will be a an, an fun cross-cultural experience for the congregation. Now, the one thing I want to encourage you on a little bit and, and uh, prepare you for is we're going to open the grace boxes for uh, love offering for uh, Curtis as well. When I go to and, and speak at a black church... Um, they're extremely generous in the way they uh, take care of pastors and speakers, so much so that it's a, an embarrassment to me now to go speak at a white church. The pittance I received the last time I spoke at a white church was not quite 10% of what I've received in many black churches, and that to me says something about our priorities. So, um, you know, we want to make sure that we... Uh, Treat him in a way in which he's accustomed to, as a way, you know, and and also one thing I one decision I made when I came back was that we doubled the amount of money we are paying in terms of our own honorarium. Now, you know, a small church, we're limited in terms of what we can uh, provide for a pastor, and we recognize that, and anyone else does too. But we also have to realize that that the amount of money that we have. Uh, traditionally been supplying in terms of an honorarium. It's about the same amount of money I received at a church of this size 30 years ago. And so um, we need to make sure that men who are giving their lives to serving the Lord and teaching the Word are, as the Scripture says, they're worthy of double honor. And so we need to make sure that we demonstrate that appreciation. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is a new subject after chapter 7, focusing on a problem that is not one that is culturally unique to the ancient world, but a problem that is a problem for everyone, and that is how do you as a believer make decisions as to what you will participate in, what you will enjoy, uh, what you will be involved in, in areas where the Word of God does not give specific instruction. And throughout the history of Christianity, there have been basically two opposing answers. One answer is, if the Bible doesn't specifically address it, then we won't do it. And you will find that in some churches that will say that, well, the Bible doesn't talk about uh, organs or pianos, so we don't have that kind of music in our churches. Then on the other hand, you have those who say, well, if the Bible doesn't forbid it, then we'll do it. You see, they're poles apart. One is the idea if the Bible doesn't say it's wrong, then it must be right, so we're going to do it. And the other one says, well, if the Bible doesn't say it's right, then it must be wrong, and therefore we won't do it. So it addresses two completely different poles. But the thing is, there are gray areas. There are areas in between that are not necessarily moral issues or spiritual issues. However, because of cultural backgrounds in every culture, whether it's a uh, European culture, Russian culture, Asian culture, African culture, every unbelieving culture has certain 
taboo, certain things that that culture thinks are just uh, wrong and you shouldn't do them. So you have to also be a little culturally sensitive in some areas. And that's true even in the United States. There are different areas of this country that where where people have different backgrounds. Uh, I, first time I ran into this was was when I was a a counselor at a Christian camp down in Texas. And uh, it was a common practice for us on Saturday nights in between the, two, the, the camps when there weren't any kids in camp that for the staff to drive into Austin and we'd go, go out to eat and then go to a movie. And uh, we started bringing in some, some staff that came from a couple of different uh, Christian Bible colleges up in Michigan. And these Bible colleges prohibited their student body from uh, going to movies, dancing, and uh, they even gave them a restricted television list so they could only watch certain things on television. Well, for most of us who were working at this camp, who came out of a doctrinal church, it was quite a shock to realize there were Christians that were so legalistic. And it was quite a shock for them to realize that there was so much freedom in the Christianity. And so usually we had corrupted them all by the end of the summer. But that is, uh, that is true in this, in this country. It used to be true. It's not as true in, in many ways today. I know that when uh, I've talked to uh, folks like Dan and some others who went to Christian liberal arts school back in the 60s, and they experienced that same level of, of um, uh, legalism and restriction, no television, no movies, you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that. And that same school today, while it's still very conservative theologically and very solid, has uh, lightened up, re- uh, loosened up on some of their some of their restrictions. I think that is good. Some of it is the result of grace, but unfortunately most of it is just due to the fact that they have yielded to the pressure of the uh, permissiveness of our society so much so that they realize that they can't maintain those same legalistic standards. Would that it were true that they had relaxed their legalistic standards because they came to a greater understanding of grace. But the problem is that most people just don't understand grace. And grace means that God did everything and that salvation was because Christ paid the price in full at the cross and that there's nothing that anybody can do to add to that, to help it, to show their gratitude or whatever rationale that is used to justify some kind of faith plus salvation or faith plus spiritual life. The fact is that if you add anything to grace, it's not grace. Now think about that. This is a time of the year, Christmas, when people are giving gifts. All kinds of people give gifts, and you receive gifts from co-workers, and you receive a number of gifts from from folks that uh, that y- you know, but you weren't really expecting a gift from. Now, think about it. If somebody gives you a gift, and the thought goes through your mind that, oh, I didn't give them a gift. I need to make sure I get them something. You don't understand grace. It's clear. You don't, it doesn't have anything to do with being polite. It doesn't have anything to do with, with manners. If you think that you have to return something when somebody gives you something, you don't understand grace. 
Grace means it's a free gift, no strings attached. You don't have to do anything else. That's what the Bible says grace is. That's what a free gift is. No strings attached. It's not you believe and then you live a certain way. Believe and be baptized. Believe and change your life. Believe and go to church. You cannot find that in one single place. John 3.18 says, uh, He who believes on him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already. What is the basis for condemnation in that verse? Not believing. It doesn't say he who committed some sin, he who uh, wasn't baptized. He doesn't say he, he who went, didn't go to church, he didn't reform his life. It says the one who does not believe is condemned already because he did not believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. It is faith alone in Christ alone. It is grace. And the same is true for every issue in the spiritual life. We recognize that every believer is a sinner, and every believer is going to commit sins, and might I say that every single one of us are at times in our lives going to fail and commit sins that may shock us and may appall those around us. When you are saved, that does not mean the sin nature is uh, limited. It does not mean that the sin nature is going to disappear. It does not mean that the sin nature is going to somehow be, become quiescent. It means that you are saved and now you have the biggest struggle you ever had in your life because in many ways that sin nature is going to rear its ugly head in ways that you never imagined before. And sometimes you're going to fail. Now grace doesn't mean permissiveness. Grace does not mean, oh, well, I'm going to fail, so let me go ahead and sin, and, uh, and then I'll just confess it and, and move on, and it's all taken care of. There's still such a thing as divine discipline. Even if you are forgiven, God will still discipline you. Uh, so grace doesn't mean permissiveness. Grace means that your spiritual growth and your spiritual life and your salvation is not dependent upon your failure. If you think that you can lose your salvation, then what you are really saying is, God, there is some sin that I can commit that really wasn't paid for by Christ on the cross. There is some sin that I can commit that, that you didn't know about billions and billions of years ago, and you forgot to put that whole sin on Jesus Christ on the cross, and now I've committed that sin. That's the height of arrogance. And guess what? Jesus Christ paid for the sin of that arrogance on the cross. Every single sin, because God is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He knows every single sin we ever commit. And he paid for that on the cross. So sin isn't the issue. One of the greatest problems with so many Christians is they're so obsessed with committing some sin that they never really experience the joy and the happiness in the spiritual life because they're so introspective and so obsessed with the fact that they may commit some sin that somehow uh, destroys their spiritual life. It might cost them their salvation that they just can't relax and enjoy life. Now, you it's, it's difficult. We all go through that process. In fact, I think it's part of being a baby in Christ, part of immaturity, is to take grace in a permissive manner. I think we've all done that. We think uh, we rationalize sin. 
And then as we grow and mature, we begin to realize that those mandates in the Scripture to put to death the deeds of the flesh mean something, that there are consequences to our sinful actions, whether we recognize it or not, whether they're obvious at the, at the time that we commit the sins or not. There are still consequences in terms of our mental attitude, in terms of our spiritual life, but it doesn't mean that there's no recovery. It doesn't mean that we've lost salvation. It's all grace. So lighten up. Relax. Take life as it comes. If you fail, you've got forgiveness. Don't, don't use that as a, don't, don't use that as an excuse. Don't fall into the trap of those who think they can just prebound. You know, confess your, wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to a party tonight and I don't know, I'm probably gonna get drunk and, you know, I may, uh, may see if I can find some gal or some guy and who knows what'll happen. And so I'm just gonna confess it now and then, uh, it's taken care of. You know, don't laugh. We laugh because we've all secretly desired that at some point or time or another. But the issue in the spiritual life is grace. So when it comes to decision-making in those gray areas, we're able to relax because we understand grace and we understand some issues. But with that knowledge of grace comes another responsibility, and that is to recognize that there are other believers who do not understand grace, who are mired in legalism, and that's one problem. And we will address that when we come when i come back from vacation because that's a a category that is not addressed in this in this passage this passage deals with someone called the weaker brother now a weaker brother is not a legalist there's a difference see there's really three categories of believers there's the grace oriented believer there's the legalist who's like the pharisees and then there's the weaker brother. Now, the weaker brother is the, uh, is the believer who doesn't have enough doctrine yet, or he's been mistaught, or he has a particular weakness in some area, such that if you are practicing or applying your freedom in that area, and he sees you that it will give him that justification or rationalization to do that which is harmful. The most obvious example I can think of is the example of someone who is um, an alcoholic. Now, as we're going to see when we get into this, causing them to stumble doesn't mean that you take the position, although you may, take the position that I'm never going to uh, imbibe any alcohol because, oh my, somebody might see me and use that as a justification for getting drunk. If you follow that rationale to its logical conclusion, then you better stay in your house with the doors locked because somebody's going to see you do just about anything and is probably going to use that as a rationalization to do something wrong. That's not what this is talking about. This is more along the lines of having a party at your house and inviting somebody who's you know is an al- alcoholic and then going over there and offering them a beer. Uh, it's a much more active concept than we normally want to interpret it. But there's a difference between the weaker brother and the legalist. You see, when Jesus confronted the legalist, he didn't backpedal. He just challenged them right to their face. You see, the way you handle, you, you, if you have a weaker brother that comes to the party, and he's got a problem with, with alcohol, you don't walk over to him and offer him a beer. 
If you have a legalist who comes to your party, you make sure you pop the top right in his face and enjoy your freedom in front of him. That's how Jesus handled it. He didn't do it in a nasty way. He didn't do it in an arrogant way. But he did not let the person who came from the wrong legalistic position dictate to him. And on the other hand, he was sensitive to those who were weak, and he handled that. So it it calls for something called maturity and discernment and flexibility. And the difficulty with this whole subject is that most people want to have hard and fast rules. In this situation, you do this. In that situation, you do that. And that is that takes you right back to legalism. But the Scriptures teach flexibility within the framework of grace, and that demands a certain amount of, of sensitivity and a certain amount of maturity and wisdom. So we will be looking at the key principles that are involved in that. Now, as we come to this passage, let's just review what we've seen so far in verse 1. Paul introduces the new subject with the phrase, now concerning, peri-day in the Greek, now concerning things offered to idols. That is, what are you going to do when somebody offers you a good steak that that morning was uh, was offered as a sacrifice to Aphrodite? He says, we know that we all have knowledge. That is, we've been taught grace. And if it hasn't been transferred into epinosis where it is... uh, where it is balanced with an understanding of the, of the issues in life, then it can become a basis for arrogance. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And he, there he con- doesn't contrast knowledge and love, as I said. There he contrasts a, an academic knowledge that is used as a justification for any sort of behavior in contrast to the principle of love, that we are to love one another as Christ loved the church, and that is the principle of the law of love, which is a spiritual law that one uses when considering immature believers. It's based on John 13:33 and 34, that the believer is to love one another as Christ loved us. It emphasizes a concern for what is best for the other person instead of asserting what is perhaps one's own legitimate personal rights. Now this is one of four laws that we will discuss in this passage. Then in verse 3, Paul says, But if anyone loves God, this one is known of him. Therefore, concerning the things, the eating of the things offered to idols... We know that an idol is nothing in the world. See, there is this knowledge that we as believers have about certain things. We know that there is freedom. We know that Christ paid the penalty for every single sin. We know that engaging in certain activities will not have any impact on our spiritual life. We can enjoy them for what they are, as as I said last time, as products of a pagan world, demonstrating their own creativity. We can enjoy music. We can enjoy theater. We can enjoy movies and literature written by unbelievers. We know that because they're unbelievers, these works are going to uh, promote a certain amount of uh, cosmic thinking, human viewpoint thinking to one degree or another. Nevertheless, understanding all of that, we can still appreciate these things for what they are without letting them impact our own spiritual life. 
in terms of this historical situation, they knew that an idol was nothing. It was a piece of wood. It was a piece of stone. It was There was nothing really there. There was no God that that represented. And so Paul says, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no other God but one, that these idols are not real gods. Now, he goes on to say in explanation, verse 5, for even if there are so-called gods, this is a little g, and what this really introduces is there is, yes, there is some reality behind these idols. And as we're going to see in our study, what's the reality behind the idols are demons. Now, see, what would happen today with the rise of the uh, neo-spiritual warfare movement, the people who read the Frank Peretti books and, and the people who go to so many uh, charismatic churches where they're casting out demons and they're, they're, they have totally distorted the whole concept of spiritual warfare, they'll pick up the idea that, that you can go somewhere, you could go into a uh, a pagan temple, perhaps you could go to India and go into a Hindu temple, and uh, you might even purchase something on the street that had been dedicated to one of these idols that was, in fact, a demon, and you've picked up a demon. I remember reading a book on, on Satan and demons years ago when I was in college, and one of the stories in that book that I never forgot was a story about some couple who had been traveling in the in the Far East, and they had bought a little statue of, of a Buddha, and they had brought that little uh, household idol back home just as an art object, and had placed it in their home, and strange things began to happen, you know, like the movie Poltergeist, you know, and until uh, they called the pastor in to exorcise the demon out of the house, you know, that's just bizarre. You don't see anything like that in the Bible. The Bible never presents that kind of an event as happening and that kind of a solution. If that is a real problem, since the Bible claims it addresses solutions for all problems, it would address a solution for that. But what the, but it always amazes me, though, the only people who ever find stuff like that are people who think that can happen. Pastors I know who do not believe that have never seen anything like that happen. And it's not because, because somebody's going to say, well, that's because they just wouldn't believe it if they saw it. No, it's not that way. It's not that, that I'm closed-minded. It's that I operate on the basis of what the Scripture says, so I'm a, I don't jump to these conclusions that everything you see is some superstitious nonsense. It gives you a clear standard for being able to evaluate experience, and you don't just look at some weird experience and automatically claim, well, you know, I can't explain it right now, therefore it must be demonic. And that seems to be the mindset of a number of people who certainly should know better. So before we can understand the historical situation, we have to understand some things about the, about idolatry and the historical situation. So I want to look at the doctrine of the, of idolatry in terms of the development of idolatry in human civilization. And the place to start is in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And in Romans 1, we see a historical summary of what took place, I think, after the flood. Not after the fall, but after the flood. That's not to say there wasn't some, there, or there weren't some forms 
of idolatry prior to the flood. But I think that idolatry as we know it, because we know so little about what took place in the antediluvian world, idolatry as we know it had its source in what took place at the flood. Now, we'll conclude with that in part of this study, but we have to start with Romans 1.18. Romans 1.18 states, For the wrath of God. Now, wrath is a technical term for divine judgment. It is a technical term for the, for the operation of the Supreme Court in heaven in bringing condemnation against creatures who are in rebellion. It is not necessarily an emotional term. It is an anthropopathism, and an anthropopathism states is a, is a figure of speech that is used to describe an, a divine operation by putting it in human terms so that we can understand that from our own frame of reference. It ascribes to God certain human emotions which God does not actually possess in order to make uh, clear or in order to communicate God's plan and policy. Now let me show you why wrath isn't an emotional term when it's used in a context like this of judgment. If you commit some crime or you know of someone who's committed some crime and, uh, and you go and you stand before the bar of justice, you stand before a judge, now, you may have committed some horrible, heinous crime. You may have uh, done something that is just repulsive. And when you're sitting there in the courtroom, the judge may be just completely repulsed by you. But he cannot let that affect what he does as a judge. And maybe you're just some kind of an arrogant uh, smart aleck who doesn't recognize the seriousness of his own situation. So you really, your whole demeanor just irritates and aggravates the judge. So the judge is, has a tendency, and any judge can and will have a tendency to be emotional. But when that judge renders a decision, it is a decision based on his clear, objective understanding of the law divorced from whatever personal feelings he might have. It might even be so that, that it is maybe very clear that you are a guilty part you are the guilty party and that you deserve a, a horrible punishment. But the case is not proven by the prosecution according to the rules of evidence. Therefore the judge may have to dismiss the case. And whether he dismisses the case or whether there's enough evidence to find you guilty or not, his emotion while present is not and should not be part of the decision. Now, there are cases, I'm sure, where judges let their emotions get in the way, but you don't want that, do you? You want a judge who is going to be able to make an impartial decision and render a just verdict apart from his emotion. And if you have committed some crime that is worthy of the greatest punishment possible under the law, then a, 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 an idiom that we use to describe that is that the judge threw the book at you. Another way we might say it is you've experienced the wrath of the court. Now, when we say you've experienced the wrath of the court, we're not saying that he was necessarily angry 
when he announced the sentence. It is simply a figure of speech to indicate the severity of the, of the punishment and the severity of the condemnation. That's what these terms mean. So be careful. Don't think that they necessarily mean that God is being emotional or God is being angry. I think that is borders on blasphemy because when you have an angry judge, you have a subjective judge. He's no longer objective, and he's no longer thinking. And I am appalled, absolutely appalled today in the light of certain things that are going on in academics about the knowledge of God and the justice of God, how many theologians don't understand what I just taught you. It is amazing because we live in such an emotional society, we just never think about emotion as being some kind of a category that perhaps does not apply to God. We just can't conceive of it. So the wrath of God is a term of his judgment and justice. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now, this is a very interesting clause right here. Men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Notice there is a comma after the word men. That indicates a certain decision, interpretive decision that's been made by the translator that I don't agree with. Because it indicates, however subtle the indication is, it still indicates the idea that all men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What that relates to is the Calvinistic doctrine of total inability. Let me see if I can... Total inability. As opposed to the concept of total depravity. Can you read that? Something's gotten on the film here, so it's not printing correctly. Total depravity means that man in every area of his being is affected by sin. Total inability means that there's no area in man's makeup where he has any ability whatsoever, including expressing positive volition. Now, what will happen is they take this phrase suppress as a gnomic present. Now, grammar merely tells you that it's a present tense. There's 10 or 12, depending on the grammar you consult, 10 or 12 different shades of meaning to a present tense. If it's a gnomic present, it means this is a universal principle that is true in each and every situation. That would mean that every single human being at the moment of God consciousness suppresses the truth. That's negative volition. However, I think it's a historical present because it's, as you go through the subsequent verses, it explains what took place after the flood. And so it's talking about the fact that, that God's righteousness is revealed from heaven. I mean, his wrath is revealed against men who suppress the truth as opposed to those who don't suppress the truth. See, there shouldn't be a comma there. It should be, for the wrath of God is revealed of heaven against all men who suppress the truth. 
but not all men suppress the truth. There are some who do not suppress the truth. We're talking about a God consciousness. These people are positive at God consciousness through the nonverbal revelation of God, which is called general revelation. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth forth his handiwork. Romans 1 and 19 and 20 is going to reiterate that principle, that every single human being, as they grow up, looks out at the, at the creation, and at some point they recognize that there's someone higher than them, someone greater than them, and this text says that they know there is a God. And some will say, I want to know more about that God, and some will say, I don't want to know anything about that God. Those who don't want to know anything about that God suppress what they know to, at that point, that God exists. They suppress it in unrighteousness, and God's wrath is revealed against them. But those who express positive volition, God in his justice will make sure they get the next amount of information, which has to do with salvation. That is how you solve the problem. What about the heathen? You see, the heathen, or those who never heard, have an opportunity at God consciousness to express positive volition or negative volition. If they express negative volition, then God will not, is not bound to get the gospel in their direction. They may, but he's not bound to by his own character and his own integrity. And so they will go the rest of their life. They will never hear the gospel, and they will never have a chance to reject Christ. But the reason they are condemned is because they never believe in Christ. And they never believed in Christ because they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness at the first opportunity they had, and they continue to be negative the rest of their life. As soon as you are positive, or as soon as anyone is positive, then God is going to keep them alive long enough, and somehow, in some way, God's going to get the gospel there. Now, some way say, well, would, would you, how do you know that God did it? What about some person deep in the heart of, of South America in the uh, 9th, 7th, or 8th century that went positive? How do we know that they got the gospel? Well, we don't have the historical records. In fact, there are many historical records that have disappeared, but I am convinced from what little we do have that the gospel made it throughout the entire world before the end of the, before the last apostle died. I can't prove that. I can only extrapolate that from what little evidence we do have. And it doesn't have to be an apostle that made it there. For example, the Ethiopian, uh, proselyte who was in Jerusalem worshiping, uh, on his way back to Ethiopia, Philip gave him the gospel. He was saved, and then that Ethiopian eunuch went back to Ethiopia, and probably hundreds, if not thousands of people were saved as a result of his witness. And who knows, there may have been slaves there in Ethiopia who had been captured from other African tribes who heard the gospel and believed and were released or escaped and made it back to their home in the bush somewhere, and they took the gospel somewhere. We just don't know, but it's possible, and, and God, we know by his character, can accomplish that. So the wrath of God is against those who are negative to God at God consciousness. Verse 19, because what may be known of God, that is known about God, a genitive of content, because what may be known about God is manifest 
in them. There is something inside the soul of every human being that it's like a radio, and it is tuned to God's frequency so that everyone knows internally there is something inside them that, that vibrate. When they start looking at their creation, there is a vibration of affinity there, and there is something in their soul, and they know God exists. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. See, there's an internal witness, and there is an external witness. There's a subjective witness, and there is an objective witness. God has shown it. He has revealed it to them. For, and you, you say, well, how did he show it to them? Verse 20, for, that's an explanation. For since the creation of the world, that is, since Genesis 1, 1, and the creation of man in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. Now, how do you see an invisible attribute? Well, here we start, we're not talking about physical sight. We're talking about mental knowledge. You know, you see things every now and then. You remember when you saw the truth of a quadratic Well, maybe you didn't, but uh, in algebra, you finally saw the truth of a quadratic equation. Or maybe we have to be a little more basic and go back to the time you saw the truth of 1 plus 1 equals true, 2. But mentally, you saw that truth. That's, that's the uh, idiom here. His invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. We examine what is made, and we see God must be omnipotent. Look at the power there. You take a microscope, and you, you get down, and you evaluate certain microscopic particles. You look at an atom. You look at, at the intricacies uh, of a leaf. You look at a snowflake. You realize that, that this is made by someone who has incredible Power. So the, the, it is a testimony, it is evidence that there is a creator who is omnipotent. His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead and Godhead. In other words, there is even nonverbal evidence of the Trinity so that they are without excuse. It's nonverbal evidence. There's enough evidence there to hold every single human being accountable before the throne of God. Nobody's going to be able to stand before the bar of God's justice at the Supreme Court of Heaven and say, well, I just didn't know you existed. I just didn't know. I didn't have a clue. And God is not going to allow that. There is enough information so that they are without excuse because... Verse 21, although they knew God, it's a clear statement. They is referring to those who have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. They knew God. They didn't think God was a probability. They didn't think God was a possibility. They knew God. They had absolute irrefutable knowledge in their soul that God exists. At some point in the life of every human being, they know without a shadow of a doubt that God exists, and then they have to decide, are they going to go with that knowledge, or are they going to reject it? And the vast majority of creatures suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, 
nor were thankful. Notice how gratitude is a key aspect of the spiritual life. But they became futile, that is, empty, vain in their thoughts. Then their foolish hearts were darkened. As a result of that, there is a judgment on them. This is part of the wrath of God. Their thinking is darkened and hardened because of their negative volition. And as a result, that hardening is going to continue throughout their life. And God may even intensify it as he did with Pharaoh during the time of Moses. But Pharaoh's the one who initiates the darkening through his negative volition. Verse 22, professing to be wise, that is, man in all of his arrogance uh, may come up with incredible amounts of information. He may get triple PhDs in in biochemistry and genetics and physics and come up with the most abstruse concepts of evolution. He may blow everybody away with his erudition and his scholarly uh, abilities. But God says, you're not smart, you're a fool. It does, intelligence, as far as God is concerned, is not predicated upon academic degrees or how high your IQ is. It's based on your fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1, 3, For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed, or literally it should be exchanged, the glory of the incorruptible God for an image made like corruptible man. This is a concrete image made of wood, metal, stone. An image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. So that what happens here is point number two. Point number one is the development of idolatry, Romans 118 to 125. Point number two is that the essence of idolatry is rejecting the creator-creature distinction. They have rejected the creator-creature distinction, and they are now assigning to something in the creation the role of creator. Well, think about the Big Bang. You go back to five seconds after the Big Bang, and you have this explosion taking place, and there's matter, and there's energy, and there's light, and that's five seconds after the Big Bang. Well, what do you have ten seconds before that, five seconds before the Big Bang? There's still matter and energy or something's there. It's not a creation ex nihilo from nothing. There is something there, and that whatever that is, that matter and energy, is, is what's eternal. So you're taking something within the created order, and it becomes the creator. In, the ancient, um, in many ancient religions, they, they too had an evolutionary concept. We say that evolution is time plus chance equals, equals complexity. They had chaos. At the very beginning, there is chaos, and the gods, however many gods there may be in their system, generated the earth. And usually the earth is made from either two of the gods procreating and out comes the earth, or one god gets in a battle with another god and kills that god, and then they make the, the earth from that body. But, but the earth is made from prior existing materials. In other words, there is always something from within the created domain that is elevated above creation and identified as God. That's the essence of idolatry, taking anything in the created realm. And that can be something concrete or it can be something abstract such as an idea. 
but taking anything within the created realm and elevating it to the position of God and exchanging God, the God of the Bible, for that idea. So the essence of idolatry is rejecting the creator-creature distinction. Point number three. Idolatry then is to take is taking something in the creation and elevating it above the creator. This developed in the ancient world into concrete idols, physical representations of gods and goddesses. In the New Testament, the emphasis on idolatry is more on abstract idols such as intellectual concepts, values, ethics, or knowledge. Knowledge in and of itself, can become an idol. You exchange that for the worship of God. Doctrine for some Christians becomes an idol. You're so caught up in learning doctrine, you forget that doctrine is a means to an end. The end is spiritual maturity and glorifying God. You're so caught up in the process of learning, and that's what the problem was in Corinth. It's just academic knowledge. But under this point, where you take something of in the creation and elevated, one of the things that happened after the flood is that demons, fallen angels, are elevated to a position of, of gods and goddesses, and these demons were the unseen reality between the physical uh, representations of these gods and goddesses. For example, in Leviticus 17.7 we, we read, And they shall no more offer their sacrifices unto demons after whom they have gone, um, well, I lost it, after whom they have gone a-whoring, this shall be a statute forever unto them throughout their generation. See, this is the uh, New King James Version. They shall no more offer their sacrifices unto demons. And there is the recognition there that the, that in going to the, to the uh, to the groves, to the forests, to the Baals and the Asherah, that when they were offering a sacrifice to that idol, that there was indeed a spiritual reality there, and it was a demon. So idolatry is not just simply, you know, worshiping a stone that's nothing, but it has a spiritual dimension to it. But it's just a demon. Deuteronomy 32:17 states the same principle: they sacrificed to devils. Not to God, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that came newly up, whom your fathers feared not. So we see the influx. This is one of Satan's attempts to destroy civilization, is to get them to worship uh, demons and demon forces. Psalm 106:37. Yea, they sacrifice their sons and their daughters to demons. So it is clear that that even though uh, you have just stone and wood idols. There was a reality behind it. Satan is always seeking to put forth his counterfeit. Point number four, modern idolatry, or that is the idolatry that developed in this post-flood environment, had its roots in the antediluvian, antediluvian means pre-flood, the antediluvian invasion of the human race. So this goes back to Genesis chapter 6, verse 3. Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, explains the reason for the worldwide flood at the time of Noah. Starting in verse 1, we read, Now it came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, 
that the sons of God saw the daughters of men. And the term sons of God is B'nai Elohim in the Hebrew. And that phrase always refers to angels in the Old Testament. It can refer to fallen angels or holy angels, but it always refers to angelic creatures in the Old Testament. It never refers to believers in the Old Testament. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. So what you have is you have fallen angels who come and they have they take human wives and they procreate and they create sort of a mixed breed race. Now at this point you always have somebody who says, well how did they do that? How can an immaterial body procreate and have sex with a with a creature made of material flesh? Well, I don't know exactly. I'd have the Bible doesn't go into it. It clearly states the fact. You can't avoid this. I mean, there's, there's three different theories. There's three different approaches to try to interpret this. Uh, I don't, I'm not going to take the time to go through all the details in Jude, uh, Jude 6 and in, and in 1 Peter, which describes what took place at this time. But there is, it, it's very clear. There is no, uh, no possibility that this explains anything else. The best explanation I can come up with is that later on in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 15, when God and two angels come to visit Abraham, and they're described as men, and they come and they sit down and and Abraham has them lie down and take a nap, and they, they they look and appear for all practical purposes to have trans trans are changed their bodies into a physical body so there's some kind of transformation that takes place and they eat and they drink and Abraham washes their feet and they're tired and they have all of the physical features you would think that if they're eating and drinking that in part of that physical body includes a digestive system so they're acting, they're, they're carrying out all the physical functions of a, of, a hu, of a human body. So it is possible, one explanation is that the way they did this was they transformed themselves into a physical human body with all of the functions of a physical human body. The thing is, whatever they transferred themselves into, the, the procreative ability was not derived from prior human parents. So the genetic makeup of of what they had was not human. And so there was a joining of uh, whatever this was, this angelic creation with humanity, producing a hybrid race. Now this is, the the, the whole purpose for this is to destroy the purity of the human race. So that Jesus Christ in the future could not be born. God had already promised that there would be a human Savior, Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. God had promised 16 and 17. God had promised a human Savior. So Satan is trying to destroy that and to prevent that from happening. So this takes place, and as a result of this, before the flood, you had this mixed breed. You know, we, it's, it, we, These stories are preserved for us 
in various mythologies. And these mythologies can be found around the world, from South America to Europe, from Africa to Asia. There are these kinds of stories of these mixed-breed heroes and gods and goddesses. Now, after the flood, when you have Noah and his three sons, and they begin to procreate and have children, they pass on the stories of what it was like before the flood. Now, some of their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren are those who are suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And so what they do is they go back to these stories that their grandfathers and great-grandfathers told them about these heroes before the flood. And uh, there's probably other demonic activity going on on the earth at that time. And so they develop and build and construct mythologies and religious systems and gods and goddesses on the basis of those stories of what happened before the flood. So that Satan is developing his own counterfeit religion and his own counterfeit idol. So that is how idolatry, modern idolatry or post-Diluvian idolatry developed. Point number five, idolatry in the Old Testament is primarily associated with physical idolatry But in the New Testament, it's primarily associated with mental idolatry. I have a quote here from a man named Kenneth Hamilton who who observes that just as polytheism continued in an underground form through the Middle Ages, polytheism, that's the worship of many gods, and you had various subgroups throughout Western Europe that continued to, to worship the old gods and goddesses, the Celtic gods and goddesses, the Druids. You know, there's a real uh, renaissance of Druid worship and the worship of the, these old gods and goddesses today under the, under the um, guise of New Age movement. Just as polytheism continued in an underground form through the Middle Ages and lives on today in modern cults of witchcraft and Satanism, the imagination of Western man was never fully Christianized. The modern idolatrous imagination, and that's the tendency of every unbeliever is to be idolatrous, the modern idolatrous imagination still refuses to believe that the promises of the living God are sure and that his grace is sufficient for all our needs. It still looks to other powers and other authorities for support and guidance, transferring to them what belongs to the Creator alone. The modern world, upon closer inspection, is filled with idols. There are historicism. See, these are ideas. Like Marxism. Marxism and socialism are idolatries. If if you have a philosophical system that's not biblical, you're into an idolatrous system. There are historicisms like Marxism that mimics God's sovereign plan and seek to explain all things by historical, political, economic, social, and military causes alone. If you get into the academic area of history and study history, you will be taught in history that there are certain ultimate causes in history. If it's economic, we call that usually Marxism. But if you're saying that the ultimate causation in history is economic or social, or legal, then you're taking an element in the creation and you're elevating that above the creation. You're basically making that a god. So most history that you read at an academic level is based on some sort of idolatrous concept. He goes on to say, um, 
There are naturalisms like evolution that mimic God's sovereignty and omnipotence and seek to explain all things by natural physical laws. So if you're going to school and you're studying biology and you're being forced to go along with, with an evolutionary theory, that is a form of idolatry. There are, there are political theories that are forms of idolatry. So we have to be very careful and very thoughtful as believers in how we handle the culture around us. Well, that gives us a background and introduction into idolatry. And when uh, I get back from Christmas, we will uh, move on into a study of uh, the idolatrous system that was going on in the ancient world and how that presented a particular problem for the church in Corinth with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word today, to once again be impressed with your grace that uh, everything that we have is from you. We do nothing to earn it or deserve it. It is a result of your love for us and your desire to freely provide for us everything we need for salvation and the spiritual life. Father, we pray that if there is anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal destiny or uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. The Bible says you can know that you have eternal life, and you know it because you have accepted God's free offer of salvation by believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, that his death on the cross completely and sufficiently paid the penalty for your sins, that you do not need to add anything to that, that in fact you cannot add anything to that, that it is complete in and of itself. At the instant that you believe that to be true, God the Father in his omniscience knows what you are trusting in for salvation. And at that instant you are transformed, regenerated. You have new life, eternal life in Christ. You're identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And this is an irreversible process that can never, ever be lost. It is yours forever. You are eternally adopted into the royal family of God and are now a possessor of eternal salvation. The issue is not morality. The issue is not past failures. The issue is not uh, church attendance, church involvement, ritual observation. The issue is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Father, we do thank you for the clarity of your word and how you address so many things for us to help us understand Uh, your creation as you designed it and as it truly is. And now, Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to put into application the things that we have studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.